Section 8 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Alan Clacy. Section 8 Harriet Walters. Harriet Walters had been a wife but twelve months, when the sudden failure of the house in which her husband was a junior partner involved them in irretrievable ruin, and threw them almost penniless upon the world. At this time the commercial advantages of Australia, the opening it afforded for all classes of men, and above all its immense mineral wealth, were the subject of universal attention. Mr. Walters's friend advised him to emigrate, and the small sum saved from the wreck of their fortune served to defray the expenses of the journey. Harriet, sorely against her wishes, remained behind with an old maiden aunt until her husband could obtain a home for her in the colonies. The day of parting arrived the ship which bore him away disappeared from her sight, and almost heartbroken she returned to the humble residence of her sole remaining relative. Ere she had recovered from the shock occasioned by her husband's departure, her aged relation died from a sudden attack of illness, and Harriet was left alone to struggle with her poverty and her grief. The whole of her aunt's income had been derived from an annuity, which of course died with her, and her personal property, when sold, realised not much more than sufficient to pay a few debts and the funeral expenses, so that when these last sad duties were performed, Harriet found herself, with a few pounds in her pocket, homeless, friendless, and alone. Her thoughts turned to the distant land, her husband's home, and every hope was centred in the one intense desire to join him there. The means were wanting, she had none from whom she could solicit assistance, but her determination did not fail. She advertised for a situation as companion to an invalid, or nurse to young children, during the voyage to Port Phillip provided her passage money was paid by her employer. This she soon obtained. The ship was a fast sailor, the winds were favourable, and by a strange chance she arrived in Melbourne three weeks before her husband. This time was a great trial to her, alone and unprotected in that strange, rough city, without money, without friends. She felt truly wretched. It was not a place for a female to be without a protector, and she knew it, yet protector she had none. Even the family with whom she had come out had gone many miles up the country. She possessed little money, lodgings and food were at an awful price, and employment for a female, except of a rough sort, was not easily procured. In this dilemma she took the singular notion into her head of disguising her sex, 
and thereby avoiding much of the insult and annoyance to which an unprotected female would have been liable. Being of a slight figure, and taking the usual colonial costume, loose trousers, a full blue serge shirt, fastened round the waist by a leather belt, and a wide-awake Harriet, passed very well for what she assumed to be, a young lad just arrived from England. She immediately obtained a light situation near the wharf, where for about three weeks she worked hard enough at a salary of a pound a week, board and permission to sleep in an old tumble-down shed beside the store. At last the long-looked-for vessel arrived, that must have been a moment of intense happiness which restored her to her husband's arms, for him not unmingled with surprise, he could not at first recognize her in her new garb. She would hear of no further separation, and when she learned he had joined a party for Bendigo diggings, she positively refused to remain in Melbourne, and she retained her boyish dress until their arrival at Bendigo. The party her husband belonged to had two tents, one of which they readily gave up to the married couple, as they were only too glad to have the company and indoor assistance of a sensible, active woman during their spell at the diggings. For the sake of economy, during the time that elapsed before they could commence their journey up, all of them lived in the tents which they pitched on a small rise on the south side of the Yarra. Here it was that our acquaintance first took place. Doubtless my readers will, long ere this, have recognized in the hospitable gentleman I encountered there, my friend's husband, and in the delicate-looking youth who had so attracted my attention, the fair Harriet herself. But revenons are no mutants. On the third day of my visit I was pronounced convalescent, and that evening my brother and William came to conduct me back to Eagle Hawk Gully. It was with no little regret that I bade farewell to my new friend, and I must confess that the pleasure of her society had for the time made me quite careless as to the quantity of gold our party might be taking up during my absence. Whilst walking towards our tents, I heard the full particulars of their work, which I subjoin, so as to resume the thread of my digging narrative in a proper manner. Monday. Much upset by their anxiety occasioned by the non-appearance the previous evening of Frank, my brother, and myself, the two former did not reach home till nearly noon. The roads were so heavy. After dinner all set to work in better spirits, came to the end of the gold, took out nearly four pounds weight. Tuesday and Wednesday, digging various holes in the vicinity of the lucky spot, but without success. The other party did the same, with no better result. Such were the tidings that I heard after my three days' absence. Thursday. Today was spent in prospecting, 
than is searching for a spot whose geological formation gives some promise of the precious metal. In the evening William and Octavius returned with the news that they had found a place at some distance from the gully, which they thought would prove pain, as they had washed some of the surface soil, which yielded well. It was arranged that the party be divided into two, and take alternate days to dig there. FRIDAY in pursuance of the foregoing plan, William and Octavius set off, carrying a good quantity of dinner and their tools along with them. They worked hard enough during the day, but only brought back three pennyweights of gold dust with them. My brother and Frank gained a deal more by surface washing at home. Saturday Changed hands Frank and my brother, to the new spot digging, Octavius and William surface washing. Their results were much the same as the day before. Sunday, October 10. We took advantage of the fine weather to pay a visit to Harriet and her party. We found them in excellent spirits, for at last they had hit upon a rich vein which had for three days been yielding an average of four pounds weight a day, and was not yet exhausted. I say at last, for I have not before mentioned that they had never obtained more than an ounce of gold altogether up to the day I left them. We were sincerely pleased with their good fortune. Harriet hoped that soon they might be able to leave this wild sort of life, and purchase a small farm, and once again have a home of their own. This could not be done near Melbourne, so they meant to go to South Australia, where any quantity of land may be bought. In this colony no smaller quantity than a square mile, 640 acres, is sold by the government in one lot. Consequently, those whose capital is unequal to purchase this go to some other colony, and there invest the wealth they have acquired in Victoria. As we had some idea of leaving Eagle Hawk Gully, I bade Harriet farewell. We never expected to meet again. It chanced otherwise, but I must not anticipate. Monday and Tuesday were most unprofitable past in digging holes, and on Tuesday night we determined to leave the Eagle Hawk and try our fortune in some of the neighbouring gullies. Wednesday was a bustling day. We sold our tent, tools, cradle, etc., as we knew plenty were always to be bought of those who, like ourselves, were changing their place. Had we known what we were about, we should never have burdened ourselves by bringing so many goods and chattels a hundred and twenty miles or more up the country, but experienced teachers, having parted with all encumbrances, myself excepted, we started for the Ironbark Gully. All the gold had been transmitted by the escort to Melbourne, and one fine nugget weighing nearly five ounces, had been sent to Richard, 
we could not resist the pleasure of presenting him with it, although by our rules not entitled to any of the proceeds. The following are the rules by which our affairs were regulated. They were drawn up before leaving Melbourne, and signed by all. Though crude and imperfect, they were sufficient to preserve complete harmony and good fellowship between five young men of different character, taste, and education, a harmony and good fellowship which even Richard's withdrawal did not interrupt. The rules were these. 1. No one party to be ruler, but every week by turn, one to buy, sell, take charge of gold, and transact all business matters. 2. The gold to be divided, and accounts settled every Saturday night. 3. Any one voluntarily leaving the party to have one-third of his original share in the expense of purchasing tent and tools returned to him, but to have no further claim upon them or upon the gold that may be found after his withdrawal. Any one dismissed the party for misconduct to forfeit all claim upon the joint property. 4. The party agree to stand by one another in all danger, difficulty, or illness. 5. Swearing, gambling, and drinking spirits to be strictly avoided. 6. Morning service to be read every Sunday morning. 7. All disputes or appeals from the foregoing rules to be settled by a majority. End of section eight.